Due to the graphic nature of this Queen Pin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of drug use and violence that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. October 12, 1988. It wasn't even 5 a.m. in Melbourne, Australia, but Victoria Police Constables Stephen Tynan and Damien Eyre had already received a dispatch call. They were to go look into an abandoned car. It was a quiet morning, so they headed to Walsh Street to check it out. When they arrived, Tynan and Eyre approached the vehicle carefully. From what they could see, no one was inside. Tynan then climbed inside to search the vehicle, looking for an ID or any signs of damage. Meanwhile, Air squatted in the road next to him, possibly in order to check under the car. But suddenly, the sound of a bullet ripped through the silence. An unknown assailant just a few feet away had crept up and fired at the duo of officers. The bullet hit Tynan in the head. Scrambling, air rose from the ground, but he too was hit by a second bullet. Though hurt, he was able to stay upright, he pivoted to attack the gunman. Air struggled with the assailant, but then a second man emerged. This man grabbed the revolver from Air's holster, then shot the constable in the head. The gunman fled the scene, leaving both officers on the ground, bleeding to death. Less than a day later, Victoria police determined their murders to be deliberate executions. They suspected the hit could only have one origin, or one vicious family rather, the Pettingill clan, led by the notorious Kath Pettingill, known in the underworld as Granny Evil. Welcome to Kingpins, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Alastair Murden. And I'm Kate Leonard. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power change them, and how it changed the community around them. You can find episodes of Kingpins and all other originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our second episode on Kath Pettingill, the matriarch of Melbourne's most vicious crime family. Last week, we followed Kath's rise and the fall of her eldest son, Dennis Allen. After building one of Australia's largest drug empires, Dennis seemingly betrayed his mother, then succumbed to his own addiction. This week, we'll explore how many of Kath's remaining nine children and sprawling criminal network forever altered the relationship between local law enforcement and the region's underworld. Coming up, we'll dive into a deadly police encounter. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. 
New season out on Spotify soon. By the spring of 1988, 53-year-old Kath Pettingill had fled Melbourne. Though the city had long been the cornerstone of her criminal empire, grieving the death of her eldest son, Dennis Allen, proved too much to stay. At least temporarily. After watching her firstborn succumb to drug addiction, Kath had enough of the violence and death surrounding her. It was unlike her to run away, but she needed distance from the carnage and bloodshed. On the Melbourne streets, the tough matriarch lived by a strict code of loyalty. Take care of your own and never give anyone up. But two hours away in Venus Bay, strangers, potentially unaware of Kath's past, couldn't have ever known that. From what they saw, she simply wanted to lead a peaceful, quiet life alone in the coastal town. Few, if any, knew of her children, continuing to wreak havoc back home in Melbourne. Like Kath's sixth eldest child, Victor Pierce. By that point, he was an infamous armed robber leading his very own pack of ruthless criminals, the Flemington Crew. For these young men, robbing people at gunpoint was an art form. And the Victoria Police were well aware of it. When it came to various local robberies, the crew nearly always made the suspect roster and were under surveillance of some sort. To say that Victor's gang and local police had a tense relationship was an understatement. It was a game of cat and mouse, and tempers on both sides were starting to wear thin. Victor and the Pettingill family believed the police targeted them as a revenge tactic. Their brother Dennis had reportedly faced as many as 60 criminal charges, including murder, over the last few years of his life, but died before being brought to trial. Briefly, it seemed that the best chance the Victoria police had to finally convict a Pettingill had perished with him. But the cops wouldn't give up so easily. Instead, they pivoted their focus to nailing the rest of the Pettingills. The authorities instituted a major crackdown on organized crime in order to get closer to the family. Suddenly, major figures from the region's underworld were found dead, or they simply disappeared. The number was so high, in fact, that organized crime syndicates in the area felt the only move was to make a clear, undeniable statement. Allegedly, they decided that the next time one of their own disappeared, they'd kill two police officers. It would all hinge upon which group the Victoria Police targeted next. At the time, all signs pointed to someone from the Flemington crew, which meant Kath's son, Victor. The gang became the prime suspects in a robbery on July 11, 1988. Likely as a result, both Victor and his best friend Graham Jensen were closely surveilled, based on evidence supposedly provided by one of the agency's informants. Soon, there was talk that the police might try to kill Victor somehow, some way. Which eventually trickled back down all the way to Victor himself. This talk was ominous enough that he decided to play it safe and go into hiding. Victor and his wife Wendy then moved temporarily, living with friends on the other side of town. But it wasn't long before the police pinpointed his location. 
According to separate accounts, on October 11, 1988, the cops believed they had tracked Victor Pierce to a local market where he was buying some parts for a lawnmower. Squad cars waited outside while he shopped. When it came time to leave the store, he saw them and promptly sprinted to his car. The Victoria police tried to cut him off, but he still made it to the parking lot exit. As he attempted to peel out into the street, officers saw a gun in Victor's hand. They proceeded to open fire on the vehicle killing the driver almost instantly. The local news broadcast that an unidentified man was gunned down at the supermarket. This apparently made it back to the Flemington crew. After seeing the update, member Peter McAvoy thought it might be Victor. Devastated, he reportedly ran back home to break the news to his flatmate, Victor's older sister, 34-year-old Vicky Brooks. Hearing the news, tears immediately streamed down her face. McAvoy comforted her as she cried. It had just been over a year since Dennis died. Suddenly, she might have lost another brother. It was too much to take. A few minutes later, the phone rang. Vicky picked up, trying to muffle her sobs. She assumed it was her mother, Kath, or another relative, calling to tell her the news about Victor. But it was Victor himself. He was alive. Next, Kath Pettingill comes to her family's side as the Victoria police target her children yet again. Now, back to the story. On October 11th, 1988, some accounts suggest that the Victoria police thought they finally gunned down a key member of the Pettingill crime family. They'd shot to kill who they believed to be Victor Pierce as he fled a local supermarket. But if this was the case, they were wrong. Victor was still very much alive. He soon called his sister Vicky to tell her just that. Victor assured his older sister that he and his wife Wendy were fine but he couldn't say the same for another member of the Flemington crew. While the police supposedly thought they killed Victor, they actually gunned down his best friend, Graham Jensen. When the couple had decided to lay low a few weeks earlier, Jensen had thought that meant he was safe. After all, he wasn't of Pettingill blood, and from what he knew, the police had set their sights wanting to kill someone specifically from the clan. Jensen was just a minor member of the family's inner circle. But still, he took some precautions. Jensen kept to himself and avoided police as much as he could. He and his girlfriend, Sandra Four, stayed quiet in the suburbs. But that still meant they had to occasionally step out for mundane errands, like grocery shopping at the market. But Jensen wouldn't return home to Sandra. A few hours after the shooting, Victoria police descended on Jensen's house to search for evidence. Upon greeting Sandra, she later claimed that they asked, are you Wendy? Assuming she was Victor's wife. Seeing her puzzled face though, the cops quickly realized their mistake. Clearly Sandra was not Wendy, and the man they killed wasn't Victor. That night, 
The Flemington crew likely gathered for an emergency meeting at Vicky's house, where they would have been joined by her and Victor's brother, Trevor Pettingill. Collectively, the men in attendance were grief-stricken and enraged, but it was hard to properly mourn their friend Jensen when they were consumed by anger that he was wrongfully shot. By the time the case ended up in trial, prosecutors appeared to take the stance that, together, the group of criminals decided it was time to make good on that underworld deal. Jensen was killed, so, in retaliation, two cops would be targeted. It's not clear who exactly put the plan into action, but it happened swiftly. By 4.45 a.m. early the next morning, Victoria Police Constables Stephen Tynan and Damien Eyre had been shot and killed on Walsh Street. The next morning in Venus Bay, Kath Pettingill listened to the radio while she was washing dishes. A news report about the constable shootings on Walsh Street came on, but she gave it little thought. She certainly wasn't considering that her sons might be involved. That is, until the segment moved to a reporter interviewing a policeman on air. The journalist asked point-blank if the Pettingill family was to blame for the murders. Kath couldn't believe what she was hearing. The police had already blamed the family for her son Dennis's unprosecuted crimes. Now they were attributing the two officer murders to the Pettingills without any discussion of other possible suspects. Kath became so enraged that she dropped the dishes on the floor. Something deeply maternal reignited in Kath. After losing one son to drug addiction, she vowed that she wouldn't lose another under any circumstances, and especially not to false criminal charges. Of all her children, Kath had a feeling the Victoria Police's main suspect was Victor. She proceeded to call her son and tell him, If they think it's you, I want you out of that house. But the call didn't assuage Kath's worry. She still felt there was more she could and should do to protect Victor. Venus Bay was simply too far. So, Kath packed up and headed back to Melbourne. Kath returned to complete chaos. Their old Richmond neighborhood was undergoing frequent police raids. Cops swarmed various houses associated with the Pettingills and other criminal locales, including Victor's home and Vicky's apartment. Detective Inspector John Noonan was in charge of leading the raids and instructed his officers not to rest until they found all relevant information. The police seemed determined to find the goods to get a conviction this time. The chaos of the raids quickly caused Victor and Wendy to contact their lawyer. On October 13th, a day after the constable shooting, Wendy phoned the attorney with her side of the story. She said that on October 12th, Vicky's son, 17-year-old Jason, had just come over. A few seconds later, though, the front door of their home was busted down and a police squad stormed the house. Allegedly, the officers shoved Jason to the floor, bound his hands, and placed a black hood over his head. Wendy stood by, likely scared for her own safety. The cops then took Wendy and Jason to the police station for questioning. The mother kept quiet, but Jason, her inexperienced teenage nephew, 
was more willing to talk. Though he knew better than to blab about the shooting, Jason instead implicated his uncle Victor in another crime, the July 1988 armed robbery. Victor and Jensen had been suspects. Jason's confirmation of their involvement was damning. When Victor learned that his nephew had given him up, he was more understanding than one might have thought. He got why Jason felt pressed to say something. He assumed the police badgered the kid until he gave up some piece of information they could use. An armed robbery was admittedly a less serious charge than murder. But robbery was still a loaded accusation that Victor had to deal with. The next day, he went with his lawyer to the police station. What started as a visit in an attempt to clear his name, though, ended in his arrest. Victor was charged with armed robbery and the murder of a security guard during the incident. Kath soon learned of all that was unfolding behind the police station doors, and oddly, like Victor's reaction, Kath's response was surprising. She wasn't upset about Victor's arrest. She was, in a way, relieved. If her son was facing these lesser charges, the likelihood that he would be targeted for the constable murders on Walsh Street was rapidly diminishing. She hoped this meant that the cops wouldn't be able to pin the duo of homicides on Victor or the Pettingill name. More importantly, though, she suspected that behind bars, her son was safe from any extrajudicial police retaliation. But she wasn't sure what to do or think about her grandson, Jason. The fact that he implicated his own uncle weighed heavily on Kath. It certainly broke her sacred code of loyalty. However, she also realized the reality of the situation. The cops had clearly targeted the 17-year-old, hoping to expose a weak link in the family. Kath debated whether Jason was just a kid running his mouth or whether he might actually be going against the family. After being away from Melbourne for some time, Kath felt out of the loop. She wondered how much the police thought Jason knew and what he actually knew. In truth, Vicky's son had his own reasons for talking. Jason knew about his family history, which made him wary of authorities. But he was also well aware of Dennis's addiction and his work with corrupt police. Perhaps there was a part of Jason that was desperate to not end up like his dead uncle. Dennis's actions had left a huge blemish on the family. Jason didn't want to follow in his footsteps. Most of all, though, Jason himself knew that he broke Kath's code of loyalty. He had gone against the golden rule of never giving anyone up. Without Kath's protection, Jason would become known as a snitch. He might be as good as dead in the Melbourne underworld. Her son's testimony about Victor undeniably left Vicky too caught in the middle. She tried to stay neutral. She supported Jason and wanted to protect him, but refused to corroborate his testimony. The last thing she wanted was to land in hot water with her mother, Kath. But things only got worse when the cops made Jason a lucrative offer. He might be offered immunity in exchange for his testimony in the Walsh Street case. The Victoria police even went so far as to say they could provide him protection, 
Whether that was enough to shield Jason from the wrath of his own family, though, was unknown. Desperate for a way out, Jason took his chances with the cops. For several days in October of 1988, the 17-year-old was placed in protective police custody. While there, Jason told them what he knew about the Wall Street killings, connecting his uncle Victor to the crime. Apparently, Jason claimed he'd eavesdropped as the Flemington crew planned the murders at Vicky's apartment. He heard them say they'd lure two officers using an abandoned car obtained by a local car thief. According to the teenager, around 3.30 a.m., Victor and the crew left the apartment. He carried a shotgun. Jason claimed he heard shots fired about 20 minutes later. Victoria police were thrilled with this new information. It seemed their plan had worked. They'd finally landed a witness against the Pettingills, all the more ironic that it was a member of the family itself. That is, until one problem became undeniably evident. Jason's story of the Wall Street murders kept changing. It wasn't clear if he did this on purpose to sabotage his testimony or if the 17-year-old was simply skittish and confused. But Jason's inconsistent evidence soon made the officers working the case frustrated and concerned. A few days later, on October 24, 1988, Jason was again placed in temporary protective police custody. This time, though, he was taken to the Australian countryside, known as the Bush, for four days. The police claimed the measure was necessary to keep their star witness alive and away from his dangerous family. But in reality, senior officers were hesitant to give Jason permanent police protection. It was a time-consuming process that was only granted for credible witnesses with highly incriminating testimonies. At that point, Jason was borderline unreliable as a witness. Senior officers hoped this trip might change that. When Jason returned, he was more on edge and nervous than ever. Kath even claimed that he bore the marks of being severely beaten. But when his family inquired about what had happened during the trip, he mostly stayed quiet. Kath noticed this difference in her grandson's behavior right away. She described Jason as being stiff, withdrawn, and frightened. It's unknown what exactly happened during those four days, but in the aftermath, Jason obtained a place in the state's witness protection program. With his safety guaranteed, his story changed once more, and this time he revealed even more information about the Wall Street murders. Jason now claimed that he had been the one to steal the abandoned car that lured the constables. Then, Jason confessed that he wasn't home with his mother Vicky on the night of the killings, like he had said in his original statement. With this new testimony, Jason claimed he'd actually been present on Wall Street for the killings. Jason even went as far as reenacting the murders for the police. While these new details were a boon for the cops, they couldn't deny they were littered with inaccuracies. Jason misidentified the direction the car was facing and couldn't point out exactly where on Wall Street the shootings happened. What's more, he claimed there were three shots 
when most of the neighborhood's residents said they had clearly heard six. But the important notion remained. Jason did confess to knowing about the plan. That was enough for the police's star witness to become a prime suspect. In his book on the Wall Street murders, journalist Tom Noble notes that under Australia's aid and abet rule, Jason was legally considered as guilty as the men who pulled the trigger. He knew the plan, he was supposedly at the scene, and he'd helped steal the car. In light of this, police charged Jason Ryan with the Wall Street murders on October 31, 1988. Which brought the total for police to two Pettingills in custody. Victor was still facing charges for armed robbery and murder, and now Jason was the first arrest in the Wall Street killings. But just to catch a portion of the notorious family wasn't enough. If possible, the Victoria Police wanted to arrest every single member of the Flemington crew, including Kat's youngest son, Trevor. They'd keep trying. Up next, Kath Pettingill unleashes her fury as more family members are dragged into the murder investigation. Now, back to the story. In late October of 1988, the Victoria Police had two men of the Pettingill clan in custody. However, only one, 17-year-old Jason, was in a position to be tried for the murders of two policemen earlier that month. Kath's teenage grandson had been arrested for the crime, based on his confession that he'd known about the Flemington crew's deadly plan. But facing trial didn't stop Jason from telling the cops more information. In fact, the teenager's story soon devolved into a confusing web of inaccuracies. The new details he offered contradicted his previous stories and actual evidence from the crime scene. Soon, local police were forced to conclude that Jason hadn't been at Wall Street at all. He was just an immature 17-year-old kid making up stories. Authorities would eventually drop the charges against Jason and offer him immunity while he remained a key witness. But knowing of his propensity to change his story, the Victoria Police knew they couldn't rely solely on Kath's grandson. So the authorities broadened their investigation. By November of 1988, the police amassed hundreds of possible suspects. Nearly every Melbourne criminal had ties to the Pettingills and could have been involved. The scope of the family's criminal network was daunting and local police grew desperate to finally charge someone with the Wall Street slayings. So when young Jason caught their ear one last time with a new piece of information, the authorities were on board to hear him out, especially because he implicated the Flemington crew, along with his uncle, Trevor Pettingill, who would be formally charged with the murders in July 1990. Though Jason's confessions had changed far too often to be ironclad, they did consistently name one man. Allegedly, Jed Houghton, a family friend and associate of Victor, had helped commit the Walsh Street killings. At this point in the investigation, police believed this was enough to issue an arrest warrant. Like most news in the underworld, Houghton was soon aware that Jason had implicated him. He was angered, 
he felt the police were out for revenge, not justice, and now he'd been dragged into the Pettingill's web as collateral. So Horton prepared for a showdown. Allegedly, he heavily armed himself in the caravan park where he lived. On November 17, 1988, when police descended on his caravan with a warrant, Horton was killed. Upon learning the news, the Pettingills, including Kath, were devastated. Yet no one was quite surprised. Kath especially had wondered which Flemington crew member would be next. Her primary fear was obviously if it would be Victor or Trevor. But with Victor in jail and harder to reach, it became evident that Kath's youngest child, Trevor, was the next best target. On November 29, 1988, four unknown assailants kidnapped Trevor Pettingill. They beat him with a sledgehammer, taunting him, tell the police the truth. But they never stipulated for what exactly. The attackers later dumped Trevor on a road by a service station. He stumbled inside and asked an attendant to call the police. Afterwards, he was taken to the hospital, where he would stay for two weeks, recovering from his extensive injuries. Which was plenty of time for news of Trevor's kidnapping to spread. He garnered media coverage and front-page stories, and yet the police didn't charge anyone for the crime. They claimed to have no suspects. Kath certainly had her suspicions, though. She believed, in light of the Wall Street murders, that the police had something to do with it. Whether the police or a rival gang were responsible, she saw Trevor's kidnapping as a clear message to her family. So she relayed her own message right back. Through a newspaper interview, Kath simply proclaimed, they're not in a situation to bargain with my family. In other words, the Pettingills were not to be toyed with. They would avenge this crime if provoked. Despite the matriarch's ominous message to beware, the kidnapping still left the family on high alert. Everyone was tense and anxious, most notably Victor's wife, Wendy. Before long, the pressure would force her to erupt. While drinking in a local pub on December 23, 1988, Wendy overheard a woman talking loudly, discussing her husband, Victor. Listening closely, Wendy heard the woman speculate that he was a police informant, just like his brother, Dennis. Wendy took this as a scathing insult. She was incensed that her husband was being compared to a drug addict who worked with corrupt cops. Wendy wouldn't stand for it. She downed her drink and walked over to the woman. Without saying a word, Wendy proceeded to break her glass and attack the woman. She slashed her in the face with the shards. It was a chaotic and violent escalation which led to Wendy's arrest for attempted murder. She would join her husband in prison. While Wendy faced her own charges, Victor was still being held on the grounds of the armed robbery charges. Allegedly, police had searched their home again and found additional evidence. By the end of 1988, that evidence, along with a handful of witness accounts placing him at the scene of the crime, was enough for the police to charge Victor Pierce with the constable murders. But that didn't mean the investigation was done. 
By May of 1989, another member of the Flemington crew, Peter McAvoy, was on the hook for the Wall Street murders. McAvoy had a plan, though, albeit one more unconventional than most criminals. He did a TV interview, using the platform to talk about how scared he was of retribution. He hoped the publicity would prompt the police to spare his life. In short, his ploy worked. McAvoy's life was spared. But his TV stunt certainly prompted local police to respond. He was soon arrested and charged with participation in the Wall Street murders. With these suspects in custody, evidence against the Flemington crew as the conglomerate behind the murdered constables piled up. Around the same time, the suspected Wall Street murder weapon emerged. On April 26, 1989, the police found a gun buried on the grounds of a Melbourne golf course. The sawed-off shotgun was a unique make and model. When tested, police ballistics matched the gun model to several of the Flemington crew's crimes, including the Wall Street murders. Though it was a key piece of physical evidence, it still didn't tell the police exactly who fired the gun. For the Pettingill family, the walls were closing in. With a clear murder weapon, charges were more likely to stick than ever. Wendy, more than anyone, realized how damning this was for Victor. She thought her husband was unlikely to ever be released if convicted, and someone needed to be there for their children. She was tired of running and living in fear. So, Wendy considered a plea deal from the police that no one could have anticipated. If she testified against Victor, her own husband, her attempted murder charges for the bar assault incident could be dropped. By early June, Wendy had agreed to the deal. She told the police everything she knew. Her most important revelation was that Victor had told her that he and members of the Flemington crew had killed the two constables on Wall Street that night in October. With that, the cops had their most damning piece of evidence against Victor yet. But Wendy's cooperation was more complicated than it appeared on the surface. She knew exactly how valuable her information was to the police. Knowing what she was sacrificing in giving up Victor, she wanted her own protection. She was placed into the Witness Protection Program. However, accounts from police tasked with guarding her suggest she was not the most cooperative witness which played into an even more nebulous situation at hand. At this time, Wendy was allegedly having affairs with some of the police officers who were protecting her. It appeared that without the Pettingills to fear, her loyalty to Victor and the family was completely gone. She'd even say so bluntly and in public. During one interview with the Wall Street Murder Task Force, she told the detective that the Pettingills were the worst people I've ever come across. Which landed heavily on the ears of one person in particular when word of her statements got out. Kath Pettingill was furious. Victor's wife was slandering her own in front of the authorities and breaking her code of loyalty. Perhaps knowing Kath wouldn't receive these words well, Wendy was careful in considering her next move. She knew if the prosecution lost the case and the Pettingills walked free, she was as good as dead. 
Kath would make sure of it. On January 21, 1991, Wendy decided that she didn't want to take that chance. Fearing for her life, she backtracked on her earlier testimony from the case. Her only explanation publicly as to what had prompted the reversal was her statement that, I don't see why my husband Victor has to pay for his brother's sins. Without Wendy, the prosecution was left with just Kath's unreliable grandson, Jason. Knowing he wasn't the dependable witness that could seal a conviction, authorities turned to Vicky, Jason's mother and Kath's daughter. Like her mother, 36-year-old Vicky would do anything to protect her child. But by that point, Vicky wasn't as beholden to Kath's code of loyalty. Vicky had tried her best to stay neutral between Jason and Kath. She supported her son while declining to corroborate his testimony out of respect to the family. But soon, police offered her something so powerful it was bound to sway her loyalties. One day, the cops supposedly passed along to Vicky that they heard a rumor about Trevor Pettingill and Victor Pierce. Allegedly, Vicky's younger brothers wanted to have Jason killed before the trial. Whether it was true or not, Vicky knew it was entirely possible. She wouldn't put it past her brothers or potentially even their mother, Kath. More than anything, she feared for her son's life. So in order to protect him, Vicky changed her position. She would testify against her brothers and enter witness protection in February of 1991. Vicky soon indicated that the two alibis of members of the Flemington crew were false. Though the men had claimed to be at her apartment the night of the constable murders, and Vicky had promised Kath she'd uphold that story, during the trial a month later, Vicky revealed they weren't true. Kath was shocked and incensed. Shortly before the testimony, Kath and a few of her other sons went to Vicky's house. But the place was empty. Vicky and all of her furniture were gone. At that moment, Kath realized she no longer had any of her daughter's loyalty. Even more, the matriarch feared Vicky might keep going and betray the family even further. She was right. Kath soon watched as Vicky testified against Victor and Trevor. With anger and hatred in her eyes, Vicky took the stand and spoke out against her brothers. Her words made it clear that she didn't care about being in the family anymore. This was enough to break even the hard-boiled Kath. In the courtroom, she looked at her daughter and cried. She claimed, I'd never seen that look of Vicky's before. Recent media reports claim the trial was the last time Kath saw her daughter. Despite their long history, the relationship's fracture was evident. Vicky feared her mother and would never trust her again. In turn, Kath loathed her daughter's splintered loyalty, and that meant exile. Kath never wanted to see her again. Despite her testimony, Vicky as the prosecution's only decent witness was a precarious position as the trial went on. Her son Jason's credibility was torn apart on the stand, and many of the other witnesses were wayward criminals who took bribes. The holes in the case against the Flemington crew grew larger. 
Soon, the defense's case seemed more plausible. The idea of a larger, more personalized police vendetta against the Pettingills was gaining steam. And the defense's momentum held until the end of the trial. In a shocking conclusion, all four men on trial for the Walsh Street murders were acquitted on March 26, 1991. The verdict rocked Victoria and all of Australia. Police departments around the country were outraged. And at the epicenter in Melbourne, authorities feared officers may try to avenge the verdict. That night, a statewide message to keep yourselves in control went out across all police radio channels. After all, the Pettingills and their associates were free once again. Naturally, though, one group was pleased with the verdict, the Pettingill family. Kath, more than anyone, believed justice had finally been served. She even forgave her grandson, Jason. She believed his immaturity had made him skittish, and he couldn't be blamed for his actions. However, Jason's mother, Vicky, remained blatantly exiled from the family. And Kath kept that grudge even as she left Melbourne. She soon returned to Venus Bay and resumed her quiet life. As of 2015, she was still living there. Though she occasionally grants the Australian press interviews, the notorious grandmother of crime notably distanced herself from the underworld after the death of her son Dennis and the events of the Wall Street murder trial. When she does speak out, Kath cites her position as one of ambiguity. She neither justifies nor condemns what the family has done. She simply speaks to the root of her actions, saying, I loved my kids and did everything I could for them. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. For more information on Kath Pettingill, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Matriarch, the story of Granny Evil Kathy Pettingill by Adrian Tame, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Kingpins and all other originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Kingpins was written by Hayley Hamilton, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Alastair Murden. 